Good morning to you. It's good to be with you today as we conclude the book of Ruth. I invite you to the fourth chapter. And while you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about a family, the Belknap family, Ben and Jackie, husband and wife. They were saving up some money to buy season tickets to the local uh, college football team. They did this every year, and they were uh, putting away a little bit of money each week until they got $1,060 in cash ready to buy their tickets. And maybe you've had a similar experience where you go to get the envelope and nobody can find it. They could not find the envelope with cash, and so they're, they're looking around, and, and Ben decides he's going to check the, the trash can, and then, then Jackie starts looking, and she says, uh-oh, I think I found it, and he knew this could not be good news because she was standing by the shredder. If you've ever wondered what $1,060 looks like going through the shredder, you don't have to do it yourself. You can just see this picture. And uh, they had a shredder, and uh, their little two-year-old boy, Leo, had gotten used to helping them shred mail and other documents that had personal information. And sure enough, Leo found the envelope, and he decided to put it through the shredder. Now, you look at him, and he doesn't look like he'd be, well, actually, he does, doesn't he? He kind of looks like the kind of guy, that smile, he just kind of looks like mischief, doesn't it? Well, that happened to them. And uh, what they didn't know at the time, but that they were relieved to hear about, is that their is a, an office within the federal government that will, that will take mutilated cash, do a little research, figure out if they can, they can substantiate the amount and, and redeem the money. Now, it, it, it's quite a process. They had to wait two years to get the money back, but wouldn't you wait for it? I mean, I think, I think, uh, I think it's probably worth the wait for $1,060. Can, can you imagine what they felt like when they first opened up the shredder and saw the money there? But then can you imagine what they felt like when they realized, hey, wait a minute, maybe it's not completely gone after all. This is the idea of redemption. And today, as we go into the fourth chapter, we're going to see that God has always had a plan of redemption. It's, it is a New Testament uh, understanding that we'll be considering today as we receive the Lord's Supper together. But it's also something that we see in the Old Testament. And Ruth chapter 4 is an example of redemption, of, of God bringing a people to himself. Uh, restoring what had been lost. And we will see this pictured in the life of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. Redemption is defined as the action of regaining or gaining a possession of something in exchange for payment, uh, the clearing of a debt. And so redemption is a powerful word. And for us as followers of Christ, we, we are recipients of God's redemptive work. And so today we think about redemption. As you turn to chapter four, let me give a, a brief overview of where we've been in this book. It's only four chapters long. It uh, uh, comes in the time of the judges. We saw that it's in that day and age in which people were doing what was right in their own eyes. Uh, Ruth chapter 1 opens up with Elimelech and uh, his wife Naomi living in, do you remember the little town of Bethlehem, right? That's where they're from. Years before Jesus was born there, that's where they lived. There was a famine, and they decided to leave Bethlehem and that they would go not only out of the city, but that they would leave the entire country 
And they left the promised land, and they went to Moab, a land known as the land of compromise, a land of idolatry, uh, evil, evil religious practices that even included things like child sacrifice. I mean, the, the, the Moabites had quite a reputation. They were, they were idolaters. They, they were very immoral. They were enemies, really bitter enemies with Israel. And so to think of, of this family going to this other place was really shocking and surprising that they would go there. But from one, from one tragedy of a famine led to other tragedies. Even in the opening verses of chapter 1, we see that Elimelech dies, and Naomi is a widow. She has her two sons who have married two women from Moab, and her sons die. And so in the opening verses, I mean, it's just a tragic uh, display of, of, uh, of, of, of events that is just, just heartbreaking. And so Naomi decides she wants to go back to Bethlehem. She had heard that the famine was over, that God had provided uh, food once again. She tells her daughters-in-law, why don't you stay here in Moab, return to your families, find another husband, and, 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 and restart your lives here. And one of them, one of them did that. But the other one, Ruth, said, no, Naomi, I'm going with you. Your people are going to be my people. And you remember what else she said? Your God is going to be my God. And so she made quite a commitment to Naomi. And they made the journey back to Bethlehem. And we get to the end of chapter 1, and the people of Bethlehem recognize Naomi, and they, they greet her. And do you remember what she said? She said, don't call me Naomi, because that meant pleasant. She said, call me Mara, which means what? Bitter. She said, I left here full and I've come back empty. Now, I don't know what that made her daughter-in-law feel like when she's standing there next to her saying, I, I came back empty. But there stands Ruth, the Moabite, right? And there they are starting life over again. But they come when the harvest is beginning. And chapter 2 shows that, that, that Ruth was able to go into one of the harvest fields because God's uh, Old Testament law provided for those in need to be able to go to a field and to glean, to, to pick up some of the crops that had been left over. And in, in her case, she went to the field of Boaz. And Boaz was very generous to her in her condition and made sure she had even more than what would have typically been given uh, to someone in need. She returns back to Naomi, and, Ru and, and Naomi says, Ruth, do you know who Boaz is? He's actually a relative of my, of my late husband. He, he's, a, he's a family redeemer. We hear that word, kinsman redeemer, come up. And so, uh, so there's hope on the horizon that, 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 one, that they will have food provided, but two, they may have family as well, because that's the other role of a kinsman redeemer, a family redeemer, is to keep the line of the lineage of the, of the family going. And so in chapter 3, we, we, we moved from the, from the theme of providence, and we moved into chapter 3, and we saw, we saw covenant love exhibited, both in, in Ruth approaching Boaz and in Boaz receiving her. She comes to him at night. It was a strange circumstance. We looked at it last week. They're on the threshing floor. And she approached him as the one that she knew could be the family redeemer that could become her husband, providing for her and for her mother-in-law, uh, Naomi. And Boaz was humbled. In fact, he was honored by her request. He was surprised by it. And we saw chapter 3 end with him saying, I will be the redeemer. I will take you as my wife. I will fulfill the obligations that are necessary. But there's a catch. There's another relative of Elimelech 
who is closer in line than I am. And so really, it's his right first. We have to see if, if he will take uh, the, the responsibility as kinsman redeemer. And so that's where we left off. So I, I hope that, that, uh, that you've not read ahead, that you've not read the, the end of the story, that you're waiting to see what's going to happen because when we left this story, we, we weren't sure, right? Well, let's pick back up in chapter 4, verse 1, and, uh, and let's see. Let's see what, uh, what happens. So it says that Boaz went to the gate of the town, and he sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. So Boaz was waiting for him. He said, uh, Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Verse 2, then Boaz took 10 men of the tribe's elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. And he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the, in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it and I am next after you. And what does the man say? I want to redeem it, he answered. So here we have yet another plot twist, right? You thought we were just about to say they lived happily ever after, but now the man says, no, I, I will do it. I'll redeem the land. And you're probably thinking in your mind, Boaz, why did you do this? You already had this, this lady approach you. You've already said that you'd do that and that you'd be the kinsman redeemer. But as we saw last week, Boaz was a man of integrity a man who knew God's word and was going to follow it. And he knew that there was a proper sequence that had to happen. And he did it that way. And he did it with these witnesses, these, these townspeople, these elders. They came to see the, the transaction that would happen. So maybe your heart has sunk now as you think about that, but we'll keep reading and see what happens. But think again about the kinsman redeemer. Uh, two words here in English, maybe family redeemer or kinsman redeemer, depending on what, uh, what version you're looking at. And, and it, it speaks, uh, first of all, of a close relative, because if you think about the day and age in which they lived, the, the property that was in a family was really the livelihood, and that would be passed down from generation to generation. And there was a provision through death or through need that if, that if property had been lost or needed to be sold, that there was a provision for someone in the family to be able to buy that to keep the land in the family. And so that's the idea of the family or the kinsman. And so this is speaking of Elimelech's family through his wife, Naomi, having someone that could come in and meet that need, continue to harvest crops from that field and provide for Naomi and for uh, Elimelech's descendants, which in his case, his sons had died. So it was Naomi and Ruth who were left. But there's also this idea of redeemer, the one who is able uh, and willing uh, to provide uh, the resources to buy back or to purchase what uh, would be, uh, what may have been lost or would be lost. And so this would have been speaking of a land transaction. And uh, the way it would work is that a title deed would be written up, it would be placed in a scroll, and it would be sealed. And if the land was going to 
trade hands. It had to be in the sequence laid out by the, by the Old Testament law. And so a kinsman redeemer would have the, like a right of first refusal, the one that would be able to come and buy that land first to keep it in the family. But it goes beyond that. It also is a transaction that says, I will be obligated for the descendants. I will take care of the widow, or I will take care of, of, of whoever else is there. So it's more than just a land transaction. It's also saying, I will care for those that are attached to that land. Leviticus chapter 25 speaks of, the, of this uh, as it would relate to the obligation of the land. It says in, in verses 24 and 25, you are to allow the redemption of any land you occupy. If your brother becomes destitute and sells part of his property, his nearest relative may come and redeem what his brother has sold. That's the land part. If you're interested and want to read later in Deuteronomy chapter 25, there's a lengthy passage there, so we won't read it now. But in summary, it then speaks of a widow who has been left behind that doesn't have a child that there would be this kinsman redeemer that would marry her and would continue the line under the name of the one who was deceased. That's how important the lineage was back in that time. And so there these two widows are, Naomi and Ruth, right? Both widows, both in need of provision, their need of someone to work that land, but they're also in need of someone to continue the line. And that is what Boaz has agreed to, but he knows that there's someone else closer in, in, uh, in relation that has the first right to do this. And he says, I will redeem it. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess. Hmm. It's almost like the fine print, right, in the deal. The wife of the deceased man, Naomi's son to perpetuate the man's name on his property. The redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. Okay, so now Boaz is back, right? He's right there in line to do what he said he would do, that he would redeem the land, that he would, he would receive uh, Ruth as his wife, that he would be responsible for reestablishing Elimelech's lineage, and he would do so through a Moabite woman who would have at that time been considered an outsider. That may be one of the reasons why the other man would, would, would not do it. We don't know all the details, but for whatever reason, he refused. Let's look at verse 7. At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. I know that probably strikes us a little strange thinking about a guy taking his shoe off or his sandal and handing it. But if you think about this, a legal transaction is happening. People are there witnessing their discussion. And this physical, uh, this physical action of handing a sandal to someone, others could observe that. They were witnesses to, to what had been a custom in their time to say, this is official. And Boaz is, is working through this process with this man so that he himself could be the redeemer. Verse 9, 
Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon, the two sons. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. Verse 11, all the people who were at the city gate, including the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah and your name well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar, bore to Judah. Because of the offspring, the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Naomi's family, Elimelech's family is not going to die off. They're going to continue to have a lineage because Boaz has agreed to marry Ruth. We can see uh, that he is identifying himself with Ruth and with Naomi. The people are, 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 uh, are witnessing this, and they are now welcoming Ruth into their own. And they're speaking words of blessing, and they even give some examples. They, they mention the, the line of Jacob. I mean, so this would have been like Jewish royalty, right? Between Rachel and Leah, there were, there were 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, and now we have a foreigner, right? An outsider being brought in, being compared with them. And they also speak of, of Tamar, who herself had been widowed. Now, if you go back to Genesis 38 and you read about Tamar, this, this is a little different situation. There's deception involved and other things in order to keep the, the family line of Judah uh, moving forward. But it is an example of, uh, of, of uh, the line of Jacob continuing. And so they reference that one as well. And so just to put that in its historical context, they recognize the significance of what is happening. Let's continue reading. Verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. And listen to this. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap and became his nanny. Wow, look at what all has happened just in these four chapters. Chapter one, she was broken. She had left the land of, of, of broken dreams and unfulfilled expectations. She had left behind the, the three funerals, right, that had happened there. And now we have new life. We have birth. We have celebration. But what the author is pointing out to us is that this, again, is provision of the Lord. Did you notice in chapter 4, verse 13, it said, the Lord granted conception? See, the Lord was in this. He was giving blessing. And the, the author also noted back in chapter 1, verse 6, that when the people were in a famine and the food was beginning to, to, to come back again and the famine would be over, that it says, 
the Lord paid attention to his people's need by doing what? Providing them food. So the author is very clearly saying the God of providence is showing up. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, and we see this both with the uh, provision of Boaz, but also with the provision of this son. Well, think about all that's happened. Naomi back in Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law saying, I have nothing, I am bitter. And now to see that she's not empty any longer. Now she's standing there with, with Ruth and, and, and the women, the same women that she said to, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, call me Mara, which means bitter. These same women are now saying, blessed are you. Blessed are you, even your daughter-in-law, she loves you, and she's been better to you than seven sons. They have witnessed an incredible display of God's grace in the life of Naomi. The story is complete, and it's more than we could have ever imagined, because look at verse 17. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And collectively, we all stop and say, well, wait, what did they just say? Are you trying to tell me that Ruth from Moab is the great-grandmother of King David, the greatest king that Israel would ever have, the man after God's own heart, that this lady is now being recognized as the great-grandmother of King David. That would have been shocking, shocking for people to read and to make these connections and to understand. And you may remember when we started in Ruth, we went back in week one to the end of Judges. And I want to point one other thing out to you about that. Judges ends with this verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. There was no king, but now a baby had been born. A baby that would be in the line of King David himself. Do you see the connection that's happening here? And in fact, if you continue reading, you see that the author continued giving the names of those individuals all the way to David. Verse 18, now these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amenadab, Amen, excuse me, Amenadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered uh, Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. That's the lineage. They went back to be able to show what happened. That's right. God used a Moabite woman to bring hope to an otherwise hopeless situation so that they would have the king known as David. So why has God chosen this story to be preserved for thousands of years? Each week, we've, we've noted that this little story is really a small story within the grand narrative, the meta-narrative of Scripture, which is that God is redeeming a people back to himself, going all the way back to Genesis 3. And when, when, the, when sin entered the world and there was, there was separation from, from, from humanity to God, he promised to redeem, 
to bring back a people to himself. And we see examples of that throughout the Old Testament, even here in the book of Ruth. So I want us to see this much bigger story that God is a redeeming God. And that as we look to take the Lord's Supper in a moment and see the connections of Christ being that ultimate heavenly redeemer, that we will be able to hang on to the truth and to the, to the descriptions of God's redemptive plan. Let me give you a few of them. First one is this. God brings his people from death to life. As I said, the book of Ruth opens with three funerals, but it ends with a wedding and the birth of a baby. Life has triumphed over death, and that's the case in redemption, that God has found us, Ephesians chapter 2, dead in our sins. But what has he done? He has made us alive again. He has redeemed us. He has saved us. He has brought us from death to life. Secondly, God brings his people from bitterness to happiness. We noted that this is certainly the case in Naomi's life. She came back and she was bitter. She was broken, but God began to work. Her, her next chapter had not been written yet. And as it unfolded, she, of course, would have been just filled with joy. Can, can you imagine what the countenance of her face must have looked like as she's there holding the little baby of Obed and just recounting what all she had been through and where God had brought her to at that moment? You know, I just want to stop and say that throughout this room, there are people that understand what it means to be brought from bitterness to happiness. There are people here that, that have a testimony like Naomi to say, I, I, I was broken. I was bitter. I had been, I had been hurt by the, by the brokenness of this world. I had been in bondage by the, by the, by the sin that surrounds. And I, 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 I was at a loss. I was empty. Then Christ found me. Christ took me from where I was and he forgave me and he gave to me new life. Do you have that testimony? Do you have that, 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 uh, that understanding that God has worked in your life? He has provided for you, brought you from whatever situation you were in and given you hope and given you this happiness that, that, uh, that Naomi is certainly enjoying. I pray that today we can understand where God has brought us from and that we have a testimony. Naomi has a testimony. Ruth has a testimony. And so do we. Testimonies of restoration and redemption all across this place. People that have been set free from, from addictions, set free from, from all kinds of, of struggles and heartache and brokenness. And God has made your life complete. That is the gospel, folks. When he takes the broken pieces of this life and he brings it back together. And we are the recipients of that grace. Well, next, God brings his people from emptiness to fullness. And uh, just as, as Ruth said, she came back empty and now, now she's full again. We know that in Christ, we come with nothing. We come with nothing that we can bring that will achieve our salvation, that will deserve God's mercy. We come empty, but he comes with the provision, doesn't he? And he gives all that we need. In fact, he gives beyond what we could have imagined, the blessings that come in knowing Christ. Next, God brings his people from despair to hope. You see, this, this book ends with hope, doesn't it? The book ends with, with new life, with, with a kinsman redeemer, with a baby, with even pointing to a king. 
King David. And it's interesting that that Ruth chapter 4 is not really the end of the story. Did you know this same lineage is found in Matthew chapter 1? Matthew chapter 1, some of the same words, same people that we just read in Ruth show up in Matthew 1. Look at verse 5. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by, look at that name, Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. And it keeps going and going. There's other generations that are mentioned, but we can't stop there. We have to look at verse 16. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. Isn't that amazing? The story of redemption that we see with Ruth and Boaz leads all the way to another baby born in Bethlehem, Jesus Christ, who would, of course, be the ultimate redeemer, the heavenly redeemer, who would be that redeemer to pay the price for the world. Well, Boaz met the family redeemer requirements, but I want to remind you of them one more time. Let's put them up on the screen so that you can see them because there are three to think about. And I want us to make the connection between Boaz and Christ. The first one is he must have the right to redeem. Must be a near relative, right? Secondly, must have the resources to redeem, to be able to pay the redemption price. And third, he must have the resolve to redeem, to say, look, I see the needs of someone else, and I'm going to be the redeemer. I'm going to be the one that comes alongside. Well, Boaz points us to Christ to the day in which God, in all of his glory, would wrap himself in human flesh and come as a baby born in Bethlehem. Did he qualify to be uh, the, the right of redemption? Was he qualified as a relative? Well, as fully God, but also as fully human, he was able to. That's why he was born of a baby. For him to be that redeemer, he had to be a human He had to be able to stand in our place and to be that one. And so evidently he he was the one who had the right. He was like us, but he did not sin. And because of that, he was able to stand in our place and redeem us. What about the resources? Does he have the resources to be our redeemer? Just think, this is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. This is the one who is able to, to, to command the weather, to heal the sick, to raise the dead. Does he have authority? You bet he does. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And he has the resources even over sin and death and suffering at all, all of it. What about the resolve to redeem? Does Jesus have the resolve? You bet he does. He is the one who said there is no greater love than when a man laid down his life for his friends. He is the one who said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. He wasn't obligated, but he was obedient. And he knew that was the Father's will. And he wanted to to lay down his life for those in need. So that is a picture again of the ultimate redeemer. As he takes up my sin and your sin, and he makes payment for that sin at the cross. So just as Boaz was fulfilling the obligations or the requirements of a redeemer, Christ has done so at an even greater level. 
We think the stakes were high in the days of Ruth. We had, we had Naomi the widow. We had Ruth the widow. We had this piece of property in Bethlehem. But you know, the, the, the ultimate redemption is at a greater level, a redeemer for the world. And we, we looked earlier about this, this transaction that happened and the, the, the idea that this land deed would have been put into a scroll and that, that the right redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, the family redeemer would be the only one to open it. Does it remind you of another scroll? Does it remind you of another title deed? One that's recorded in Revelation chapter 5? Listen to this. Make the connection with me between Ruth 4 and Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. So the the apostle John is having this vision. He says, there's nobody to open the scroll. This is terrible news. There is no redeemer. Verse four, I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. What's going on here in Revelation 5? I'll tell you what's going on. It's the same thing that Boaz was doing. There is a need for a redeemer. And in this case, it's for the whole world, for all people everywhere. The title deed of the entire earth is at stake. And there's no one that meets the qualifications. Or is there? Let's keep reading verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll in its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Do you get the picture of what's happening here? There is one who can open the scroll. There is one who meets the qualifications as being the ultimate redeemer. And it, of course, is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, sacrificed on the cross, who is represented in the elements at the front here that we will be receiving in just a moment, laying down his life, his body broken and bruised, his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And what do they do in heaven? It says in verse 9, they sang a new song. You are worthy. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. 
Folks, they're talking about us here, right? They're talking about us. We're a part of this. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands, plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. With that in mind, church family, we approach the Lord's table. We have pictured for us in Ruth 4 and in Revelation 5 the price that was paid. So I invite you to the Lord's table today to receive the elements, the bread and the cup, and to worship our Redeemer who purchased us from sin, paying the ultimate price. Each of you are invited to participate. You don't have to be a member of the church. We only ask that you be one who professes faith in Jesus and that this would be a time of of worship for you as you hold the elements which symbolize, which represent that precious price that was paid for your salvation. I'm going to ask the deacons to come and begin serving. You will notice as the trays come by that there are two plastic cups that are stacked. Take both cups. The bottom cup contains the piece of bread and the top cup has the juice. Hold on to those cups. Hold on to the elements. And after everyone's been served, we're going to pray a prayer of blessing over them. And while, and while the, the elements are being distributed, allow this to be a time of worship. Pray to the Lord. Give him, give him thanks for what he has provided. Maybe it's a time of of confession as well as you think about the sacrifice for sin and the sin that, 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 uh, that may be uh, continuing to tempt you and try to draw you uh, away from the Lord. Allow this to be a time of worship and confession and thanksgiving. After everyone has been served, we'll come back together. We'll pray and then we'll receive the elements.